Well, good morning. Good morning. And I'm going to uh, offer you greetings from First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro. Uh, it is always a joy to be here with the Temple Hills Baptist Church, church family. Uh, we are so thankful for you as a church, uh, for your gospel witness here in Temple Hills. We pray for you often. Uh, on a personal note, I'm very, very thankful for not only you as a church, but for your, one of your pastors, Omar. Uh, he's a huge encouragement to me, uh, a prayer partner of mine, and so I'm very, very thankful for not only for him, but for you. It's a, it's a humbling honor uh, to be here to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, and so if you will, please uh, take your Bible out with me, and if you can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you're looking at the, um, the blue Bible in the chair that you're sitting in and wondering where Ecclesiastes is, it's right after the book of Proverbs. It's found on page... 553 of that blue Bible in your chair. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 1. Now what I'm about to say might be controversial to some, but facts are facts. Michael Jordan will go down in history as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And it's no wonder, it's no wonder, I've seen him play. It's no wonder that Gatorade had a commercial when I was growing up that showed Michael Jordan playing basketball on the playground. And while he was playing basketball on the playground, all these kids were following him around. And in the background was this song where the, the, there's this person singing, uh, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. You remember that song? And I, growing up, wanted desperately to be like Michael Jordan. That's why... In my, in my uh, room growing up, I had a six-foot poster of Michael Jordan. Um, but Michael Jordan doesn't play basketball anymore, professionally. And when he turned 50 years old, uh, ESPN did an interview with, with Michael Jordan. It was by an ESPN journalist called Wright Thompson. And he interviewed Jordan, providing a kind of behind-the-scenes behind look at what his life looked like not just in his career, but what his life looks like today. Though he is retired, Michael Jordan stays busy. Uh, he's one of the owners of, of the Charlotte Hornets, and he still is managing his Jordan brand with Nike, along with other things that he does. Uh, and if you, if you look him up, you'll find that his net worth is $1.7 billion. And so if you go to his company today, uh, with, with where he's kind of managing his his Jordan brand at Nike, there's dozens of employees man helping him manage his company. And as you, if you read this ESPN article, the, the journalist notes that uh, in case anyone forgets who's in charge at his company, uh, they, they only have to recall the code name given by the private security team for Jordan. Jordan is called Yahweh by the security guards. And Yahweh, you'll know, is a Hebrew word for God. So it's not necessarily a term that, that, that inspires humility. But that's what they call him. Jordan, if you, if you kind of track his career and his fame, Jordan has, has lived his life at the top for so long, the article says, that he's used to being the most important person in any room that he enters. However, the journalist goes on to note that his... Self-esteem has always been tied directly to the game of basketball. And so now that he's retired from basketball, he uh, 
feels adrift. He's asking questions like, who am I and what am I doing? In fact, if you listen to his Hall of Fame speech, Jordan calls, Jordan refers to the game of basketball as his refuge. He refers to basketball as the place where he's gone when he needed to find comfort and peace. And so without basketball, Jordan confesses in this article in ESPN magazine, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? We all, my generation, sang, I want to be like Mike growing up. He was supposed to be our guide to the good life. But if this is the sad end of a person who gets everything the world says is necessary for the good life, the question is, should we still aspire to be like Mike? Probably not. And yet we still envy Mike. I mean, that's, that's $1.7 billion. That's a lot of money. And so even though we know the right answer, we, we still kind of aspire to his lifestyle. Our hearts still want to be the most important person in the room like Jordan has been. And we still think, even though we know as Christians that's not true, we still think that that idea, that money, that influence, that importance would bring us peace, would bring us significance. So even though we know better as Christians, the reality is, is that we today need a better guide to show us what makes life worth living, what will bring the good life. We, we need somebody with better credentials than Michael Jordan. Well, friends, the preacher who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes is that guide for us this morning. If you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, we're not exactly sure who he is, but he refers to himself as the preacher. So I'm going to refer to the author, the human author of Ecclesiastes as the preacher throughout our time this morning. So uh, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And I have three points for us this morning. Point number one is this. Every pursuit for gain in this world is a dead end. Every pursuit for gain in this world is a dead end. And we're going to see that point developed in chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. So let's look at God's word together, starting in chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has known, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let me pause there for a moment. If you just look down at chapter 1, starting in verse 2, you'll notice that the book of Ecclesiastes begins with a very sobering statement, and it ends, it ends in chapter 12 with the same sobering statement. It begins saying, 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And he says that again at the end of the book. Vanity, that word vanity in Ecclesiastes shows up 38 times in the book. It translates the Hebrew word havel. Uh, so if you translate that Hebrew word into English literally, it literally means vapor. It means a, a puff of smoke. So imagine, if you can picture in your mind a puff of smoke, or if you can imagine your breath that you can see on a cold winter day, that is havel, that is vanity. That's what that word means. So that what, what the preacher is saying when he says that all of life is vanity, all of life is havel, all of life is a poof. What the, the preacher is teaching us is that a couple of things. It's first of all teaching us that life is fleeting, right? right? If, you, if you go out in a cold day and breathe, you'll see, your, you'll see your breath. But as soon as you tell your friend sitting next to you, look at my breath, it's gone, right? My wife and I were listening to a, a radio station on Pandora. You know, we can pick your radio station and we put in 90s hits. And it just dawned on me that that's what I grew up with. But that's now the oldies. And it's like, what just happened? Life is... It's fleeting. The other thing that the, 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 the preacher is teaching us about the nature of life, not only is it fleeting, but by showing us that it's vanity, it's, it's all, he's also showing us that life is ungraspable. So there are certain events in life that we just, that are, that are above our pay grade, that we will not be able to understand why this is happening, why that happened. We can't grasp it with our mind. Nor can we grasp some of life's events with our strength. We, we desperately want to control life, but there are just some things about life that are beyond the grasp of our strength. Amen. This side of heaven, life is a treadmill. We're kind of like the gerbil on the wheel. We, we run, we work hard, we might even work up a sweat, but we really don't get anywhere. When we get off the treadmill, you're right where you started. It looks like you worked hard, but you didn't really get anywhere. That's the nature of life. It is vanity. Now, we can try to, to look for things that the world has to offer, look for what, what is under the sun, as the author will say, to try to, to, try to find, is there something in life that's going to make life meaningful, that's going to make life have purpose and value and, and, and produce gain that, that will make life worth living? We can try... But it's that treadmill. We're not getting anywhere. And so the, the preacher says to us very soberly, listen, it's, it's not, you're not going to find what you're looking for under the sun. You're not going to find the purpose of life, the meaning of life, significance under the sun. You have to look somewhere else. Now we as Christians, we, we say amen to the preacher and his perspective on the nature of life. Amen. But even though we say amen, on Monday, it's real easy to go back to the things of this world to try to find the good life. And so knowing that, knowing that we struggle to believe, the preacher steps out of the pulpit and joins us on Monday. And this time, he's going to show us, not just from the pulpit, he's going to show us from his life, with his life as an example. What are his credentials? What right does he have to tell us that we won't find what we're looking for under the sun? Well, look at verse 
12 of chapter 1. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So as the king, he has unlimited resources, unlimited time, unlimited authority to do what he wants. We, we're not kings and queens like he is, but he is the king. He's able to take all the world and all that the world can offer, and he's able to take it as far, a lot farther than we can ever dream of. Look at verse 13 then. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So he's the king, and he's searching for something. What's he searching for? Well, he tells us at the end of chapter 2, verse 3. If you skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 3, he tells us he's searching for what was good for the children of man to do under heaven. In other words, he's searching for the good life. He is trying to test what this world has to offer us to find satisfaction and meaning in life. So with ample resources, he's the king, with wisdom at his side, and with us today knowing that this is God's inspired word, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is a trustworthy guide. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow him as he kind of shows us what he found. His first pursuit or test is to look at wisdom and knowledge. What does wisdom and knowledge have to offer us? Is the answer in wisdom? Is the answer in knowledge? Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And so what he's telling us in verse 16 is... The preacher has studied, he's done his homework, he has aced his exams, he got the perfect score on the SAT and the ACT, and he went to the best schools that the world had to offer. He even explored the opposite of wisdom. He explored madness and folly, and then he reached the pinnacle of the academic world with more PhDs, more knowledge, and more wisdom than anyone who had walked before him. And then he held a conference and invited the world to come to his conference to, to hear his conclusions, his findings. And the room was packed, and he gives his conclusion in verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. I perceived, here's his conclusion, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. What a vivid picture. I got it! I caught the wind. Striving after the wind. Now, wisdom does help him see the world rightly. It's better than folly. And so he's going to continue to use wisdom as a guide as he looks at these different things the world has to offer. But what wisdom helped him see was not ultimately encouraging. Look at verse 18. In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases Sorrow. The more he sees about life in this world, the more sorrow he has. Friends, real simply put, education is a wonderful gift. You're having a, 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 a backpack drive on Saturday. It's a wonderful thing to do because we value education. God has given us minds, and we want to love God with our minds. And so we, we, we should work hard in school. We should love God with all of our minds. But, but when we pause to look at how much we value education or when we pause to consider the lengths that we go to putting our kids in the best schools, 
There are times, I think, that we live as if, and we show our kids, that education is what opens the door to the good life, not God. Education is what will give you meaning and significance and value in this world. Again, there's nothing wrong with good grades, and there's nothing wrong with good schools. Kids, you should work hard in school. But if we bow down to the God of education and sacrifice time and marriage or kids on the altar of education in order to get ahead or find happiness, the preacher warns us, you're striving after the wind. Wisdom is useful, but it cannot change life from being a It can't change life from being fleeting. You can't slow the clock down. You can't make life graspable with your mind or with your strength. Okay, so wisdom is good, but it has its limits, says the preacher. Okay, well, let's go on to the next test. What about, if it's not wisdom, what about pleasure? The preacher, again, with unlimited resources, unlimited power, says, I've been there. I've done that. I've tried pleasure. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So the idea, friends, of pleasure here isn't something sinful. In chapter 2, verse 26, he uses the same word for pleasure to refer to as something that is a gift from God. But as you listen to the preacher, how would you answer this? I would be happy. I would be content if what? For you. Fill in the blank. I'd be happy if. And we all have our answers, right? Your answer might be different than mine. But to spare us the frustration of striving after wind, the preacher shows us the end of pursuing pleasure as the answer to finding meaning and purpose and significance in life. He says it's vanity. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So here in verse 2, he says, well, maybe what I need, I've had a rough day, Life feels frustrating. Maybe what I need is just a good laugh. And so he turns on YouTube and finds a funny clip to entertain himself. He watches a comedian on Netflix. He, he, he goes to his neighbor to hear a good joke. Maybe that will do the trick. Maybe that's where gain can be found. I mean, who doesn't like to have a good laugh? It's a good gift from the Lord. But to use laughter in hopes of finding ultimate gain the preacher says it is mad. In other words, it turns you into a fool when you try to use laughter or comedy for that end. Because it's an attempt ultimately to hide from reality because we don't know what else to do. We just hide behind the jokes. He goes on in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. And so here in verse 3, he, he tries 
a good glass of wine. Maybe, the, maybe a good glass of Pinot Noir will do the trick. Now, there, there are different opinions about this among Christians, it's, but Scripture is very clear. It's not that wine is evil. Amen. The misuse of it is. But wine itself is not evil. In chapter, in chapter 9, verse 7, the preacher will say, Go drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. The problem isn't wine in and of itself. The problem is that wine does not produce the gain that he's looking for. It's not the answer. It can provide a temporary pleasure. It can provide a, a, a pleasure that is fleeting, but it won't fix the problems of life. Amen. In fact, if a person gives in to the sin of drunkenness, and by the way, the Bible is very clear that drunkenness is a sin, Amen. it will only add problems to your life. It won't solve problems. It only add problems to your life. He goes on. So he keeps, he keeps exploring. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, the preacher, he's tried pleasure and he's, he's tried wine. Now, now he's trying work. Maybe the answer's in his job. Maybe the answer's in being busy. And so he, he goes to work. He's getting stuff done. He's knocking things off his to-do list. Doesn't that feel good sometimes? For some of you. He's burning the midnight oil. He's trying to recreate paradise, building homes and gardens. Because I think what he's thinking here in verses 4 through 6 is that if he works hard enough, if he, if he just is able to be successful at his job, if he's able to gain the approval and the respect of his colleagues, then he's made it. Then he's somebody. Then life means something. If he can just work hard enough and get his dream home, and this dream home has vineyards, and this dream home has a pool, and this dream home has a five-stall garage, maybe, just maybe then, he'll be happy and stop feeling restless. He keeps going. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So if work, if working his eight to five job and building these houses doesn't deliver, maybe retirement will answer. Maybe, maybe retiring from work will produce what he's looking for. If he just has enough people whose job is to wait on his every whim, if life can just be one big, long vacation, wouldn't that be nice? A group of people whose job is just to make you happy? Would that do the trick? Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. Here the preacher pursues wealth and entertainment. With enough money to never worry about a budget, maybe that would make him happy. Isn't that what the lottery ticket promises us? What was the, what was the mega lottery? It's like over a billion dollars somebody won? Is that going to make that person happy? 
Or maybe if I hire the best musicians, the preacher thinks, the best performers to entertain me and to amuse me and to distract me, maybe then I'll be happy. Isn't that what Netflix is geared to do? And then the end of this, verse 8. He says, I got many concubines, which are the delight of the sons of man. And so here, at the end of verse 8, the preacher pursues sexual pleasure. You knew that was coming. He thought, maybe, maybe if I could find the most beautiful women on the earth to satisfy every sexual desire I have, maybe, maybe then I'll be happy. And I want to pause here because when you look at verse 7 and verse 8, part of what he's doing in verse 7 and 8 is using people, whether a, a slave or a concubine, for his happiness. And I think we just need to pause here for a moment because this is the Bible we're reading. And when you hear about slaves in verse 7 or women in verse 8 being treated as a commodity, that is heartbreaking. There should be something in us that says, hold on, that's, that's not right. And if you're feeling that, that's correct. The idea of slavery, owning someone uh, or uh, treating them as a commodity, as a concubine, is contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's contrary to the, the picture, the biblical picture of the dignity and the value of every human being. Because the Bible is very clear in Genesis 1 that every human, whether you're male or female, whether you're black or white, whether you're any ethnicity, every human is made in the image of God. Amen. The Bible very clearly condemns slavery. The Bible condemns fornication, sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. But slavery and concubines are mentioned without comment here because it's not the point, the, mor the morality is not necessarily the point of this passage. He's just, he's trying everything the world has to offer. But I want us to notice here, though, the fruit of this. Notice that when our personal happiness is made ultimate, we become inherently selfish. It doesn't matter if I have to use you to make me happy, as long as I'm happy is the, is the goal. And that's what he's, he, we notice here. He repeats over and over, I, I, me, me, I, I, in the text. All his toil is for myself. And selfishness leaves us indifferent to how others are treated. As long as I'm happy and as long as I feel significant. It doesn't matter if I stomp on you to get there. Verse 9. He keeps going. Try some other things. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. From my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. So this is the man who had everything. You see that in the text? Everything the world had to offer. He held nothing back, and he pursued every pleasure and everything that this world has to offer to make him happy. Laughter, wine, work, houses, pools, vacations, wealth, entertainment, retirement, sex. And in all of his pursuit, he kept his head. His wisdom remained. So what is the conclusion of this wise king who tried everything? Verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity Amen. and a striving after wind. 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see that refrain all throughout Ecclesiastes. It was vanity. It was vanity. It was a striving after the wind. Why? Because there's nothing to be gained ultimately under the sun. It's like trying to, it's like, it's like getting on a treadmill and trying to get across the country. You're working hard, you're running, you're sweating, but you're not getting anywhere. You, the answer's not under the sun. It does not ultimately satisfy us because we're not ultimately made for those things. And friends, if we don't have it yet, if we, if we look at people like the celebrities or the Michael Jordans of this world and think, well, listen, I know the preacher says that, but like if I had $1.7 billion, I might have a different conclusion than Michael Jordan. Maybe that would make me happy. Maybe I will chase after it. Maybe I will get it. But if you, if you get it, we'll ask is this it? That's what the preacher's saying. He said, I had it. And my conclusion was, is this it? Is this all there is? Either way, every pursuit for gain under the sun is a dead end. Point number two. It's a dead end because death is your end. That's point number two. It's a dead end because death is your end. And we're going to see this in verses 12 through 23 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 23. Look with me in chapter, chapter 12, or chapter 2, sorry, chapter 2, verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king, or only what has already been done? Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that is, this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that, there, that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Being a wise person doesn't save you from death. Amen. Having pursued wisdom and the pleasures to their ends, the preacher now turns around to reflect on these things. And in verse 13 he recognizes, yes, it is better to be wise it's better to be wise than a fool, just as it's better to walk in the light rather than the darkness, because you at least know where you're going. Wisdom will show you where to go. So wisdom will show us how to live skillfully in this world. You want to live skillfully in this world? Read the book of Proverbs. Amen. It shows you how to live skillfully. But it doesn't save you from death. Amen. So once again, he's confronted with wisdom's good, but wisdom has its limits because of death. That's the same event that happens to all of them at the end of verse 14. Death. Ecclesiastes might sound morbid at first because he keeps putting it in front of your face over and over. You're going to die. You're going to die. Don't forget that you're going to die. But the reason he does that is he says, listen, I'm not being morbid and cynical. He's just saying, I want you to look at the end of your life. You're going to die. You got it? Don't forget that. Now work backwards from there and how you live today. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. 
Verse 16, how the wise dies just like the fool. We strive and toil, laboring to learn how to live, but anything we figure out, anything we think we gain, only ends in our death. And then it's the great equalizer. You can build a multi-billion dollar company and think, I'm getting ahead. But then guess what happens? You die. <laughs> and you can't take it with you. He says that in chapter 5. Look at verse 17. So, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Don't you love, don't you love the, the, uh, the frankness and the honesty of biblical writers like Ecclesiastes? Because you, you read this and you're like, I feel that way sometimes. And he's like, yeah. And he shows us how to live when life feels like this. When the preacher says, I hated life in verse 17 and verse 18, you got to be careful there. He's, he's not saying, oh, I'm so depressed that I just want to die. That's not what he means by that. Instead, what, he, what he's saying is, is when I look at the treadmill nature of life, work and work and work, but I don't get anywhere. When I look at the futility of life, when I look at the eventual loss of everything I've worked for, when I look at that, when I hear creation groaning under the curse of futility, when I look at the current state of things that can't change or won't change, I hate that. One writer puts it this way. I think it's helpful. He writes, we read the news, we bury our children, murders, thefts, bribes, fists, weapons, sex, lies, and weather patterns are all used to brutalize people. We hate that what God created good has become like a rusty nailed playground, no longer fit for kids at play, and constantly cutting the skin of those who try. We hate this. That's, that's well put. The wise cannot look at the state of our world and pretend, yeah, you know what, it's, it's, it's all really good. There's nothing wrong with this world. It's not. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 8, is going to tell us that there is a time, there's a time for everything. And Ecclesiastes 3, 8 reminds us that there is a time to hate. There's a time in life when hate is appropriate. This is one of them. The preacher is inviting us to join him in a righteous hatred, to hate the devastation that Alzheimer's or car wrecks or hurricanes or sin leaves in our lives. We should hate that. Why? Because the, the groaning of creation, the, the Alzheimer's, the car wrecks, the hurricanes, the, the, these groans from creation are designed to help us hate our sin. Not just sin done to us, but our own sin too. We, in, a, we in, other words, we in other words, should hate our sin like we hate cancer. Verse 20. So, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair 
over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For has what, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is what? Vanity. Vanity. So when, you hear the, when we hear the preacher say, I gave my heart up to despair in verse 20. This is the preacher. This is the guy God is inspiring to write his word, and he is despairing. That's not good. He's looking at the light. He's looking at the world and saying, okay, we're going to try to figure this thing out. And his, his conclusion here in verse 20 is, I gave up my heart to despair. To despair means to lose hope. And normally, that's not a good thing. If you tell me I'm in despair, I'm like, that's normally not good. But listen, the preacher is being provocative. Despair can be a good thing when we despair of the right thing. The preacher set out looking at all that is done under heaven. Amen. Let's just let's look at the world apart from God. Let's look at let's look at the world has to offer under the sun, as if God doesn't exist. Let's see if we can find the answer to life and meaning and purpose, the good life. Let's see if we can find the good life there. That's what he set out to do. And then he despaired of that. He gave up hope of finding the answer there. Amen. And that's a good thing. Amen. Friends, to rely on wisdom, to trust in laughter or wine or your job or a new home or more money in the bank account or the next vacation or the sexual pleasure or the approval of your neighbor and the praise of man, relying on and trusting in those things to find meaning and purpose and significance in life is grasping the wind. It wasn't made for that. You weren't made for that. Listen, if I take my 3,000-pound Toyota Corolla this afternoon and I, and I prop it up on a folding chair to change the oil, guess what's going to happen to that folding chair? It's going to collapse because the folding chair was meant for me to sit in, not a 3,000-pound Toyota Corolla. It wasn't designed to hold up that much weight. In the same way, friends, God's gifts like a new home, or laughter, or wisdom, or wine, or a vacation. Those gifts cannot bear up under the weight of our worship. They're not meant to be worshipped or trusted in for ultimate things. Only God can bear up under the weight of our worship. Despair acted like a spiritual smelling salt for the preacher to wake him up to the fact that that the pursuit of things under the sun to find meaning and purpose in, in this life was only striving after the wind. He gets it now. So when you hear the preacher talk about despair, you might think, yeah, I, I'm, I see it for him. It makes sense. But you might still think that it's an overreaction. I mean, $1.7 billion in my bank account, that might bring me some happiness. Being the most important person in any room I walk in, I mean, come on. 
and, and you might tell yourself, well, listen, I'm not trying to be a celebrity. I'm not trying to be Michael Jordan. I don't need $1.7 billion. I just need, I just need to pay the bills. And so you're, you're not looking to be Michael Jordan. You're just okay with a quiet, comfortable life. But because, listen, because death is unavoidable for us all, the preacher's audience is not limited to the celebrities and the sports stars. He's addressing a human problem. If life's going really well for you, if, if life has gone fairly smooth for you up to this point, you may, you know, what you trust in, other than God, may not have been exposed yet. You might be flying under the radar, your idolatry might be falling under, falling under the radar and unnoticed in your life. But when a trial comes and exposes the things that we trust in, and the folding chair collapses under the weight of it, we won't think that despair, like the preacher's saying, is an overreaction. When what we had trusted in collapses under the weight of our worship, our life will feel like verse 23. He says, all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Friends, I wonder, if you look, if you look at back in the last two and a half years, none of us knew a global pandemic was going to come through town. <laughs> but it did. And I wonder if just a little bit of reflection helps us to realize that how, and see the different ways how a pandemic, a global pandemic has exposed the things that flew under the radar that we trusted in. You're like, I didn't realize I was trusting in that. But over two and a half years of a global pandemic and all the mess that came with that, it's exposed certain things in our hearts that needed to be exposed, that needed to be despaired of, that we were trusting in other than God. The preacher doesn't want us to dread tomorrow. He wants God to be our trust. He wants to, to free us up from fearing tomorrow. And so losing hope in our idols, despairing of our idols, can be a medicine that helps us hope in God. It might, it might taste bad going down, but it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give us life. Friends, have you, like the preacher, despaired of trying to control the things in your life? that you don't have control over? Have you let go of hoping to find gain, the gain that you're looking for, under the sun? Because until you despair of finding those things under the sun, you're only going to be striving after the wind, day after day after day. And the preacher wants to spare us from that sorrow. Remember what 50-year-old Michael Jordan asked? How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? He doesn't have an answer for that. Not in this, not in this uh, when he was being interviewed by ESPN. I pray that he does find the answer to that. But friends, we have the answer for that. We have an answer for Michael Jordan. We have an answer for us. True peace is not found on the basketball court. True peace is not found by graduating top of the class. True peace is not found by being on the cover of Forbes magazine. No, true peace is found on a cross outside of Jerusalem where Jesus 
the sinless Son of God died for sinners like you and me who tried to be God, who tried to be Yahweh and failed. And when we despaired of trying to be God, we turn around and God is saying, I've sent my son to die for you, to forgive your sin, and to reconcile you to myself. So friends, if you're here at Temple Hills Baptist Church this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, we are glad that you're here this morning. I don't know the things that you're trying, the things that you're facing, the things that you're wrestling with, but I trust that God is pursuing you through his word this morning. I pray that what you hear from the preacher in Ecclesiastes, that you hear him and that you would give up the idea that you're good enough, the idea that you can be God, the idea that you can control tomorrow, the idea that you can, that you can understand tomorrow. Amen. I pray that you, like the preacher, trust him and embrace despair when it comes to trusting yourself or this world. And instead, turn to Christ, who died in your place and rose again on the third day on your behalf. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus, who died for your sin and rose again to rescue us from death. My non-Christian friend, don't gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. The world will never be enough. Look to Christ today. So, looking for the answers under the sun is a dead end. And it's a dead end because all of our end is death. But does this mean that the, that the Christian should see the natural world as bad? Should we look at lemonade and, and a barbecue lunch and a nap on the couch and a vacation on the beach as a bad thing? Are we to deny ourselves all the pleasures that we see in this world? Look at verse 24. Surprising twist, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, you can eat. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Friends, this brings us to our third and last point. Uh, point number three, enjoy the gift and worship the giver. Amen. Enjoy the gift and worship the giver. And that's in chapter, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. We can use the, the material world for bad things, right? But it, the natural world, is not bad. A knife in and of itself is not bad. You can use a knife for making a delicious meal. But that neutral tool of a knife can also be used to kill someone. It's, it's not that the knife is bad, it's that how we use it can be bad. The good gifts of God are meant for us to be enjoyed. Notice in verse 24, we are urged by the preacher. I mean, here's a good command for us. Eat, drink, find enjoyment. You like that command? Amen. Eat, Amen. And drink, and find enjoyment in all our toil. Or in the New Testament, Paul, 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's the last thing that Paul says. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Friends, when we stop trusting God's gift to deliver what only he can, then and only then the divine gifts of friends and marriage and money and sex within marriage and food and work and vacation and music, all those things are allowed to breathe and then they become enjoyable when we don't expect them to deliver what only God can give. How are we to enjoy God's gifts then? Well, one thing to notice in this text is that enjoyment isn't automatic. Enjoyment is not the result of a math equation. X plus Y equals enjoyment. It doesn't work that way. Enjoyment is a gift that God gives. Not only does God give you the, the gift itself, he gives you the ability to enjoy that gift. Verse 24, enjoyment is from the hand of God. Verse 26, God has given wisdom and knowledge and Joy. Joy is a gift from God. It's, again, it's not only that God provides us with T-bone steaks and sunsets and friendships. He also gives us the ability to enjoy the T-bone steak and sunsets and friendships. And without God, those things are not enjoyable. The proper enjoyment of things comes by looking and worshiping the giver of those gifts. To enjoy is a gift from God. And so one application from this text is to cultivate a spirit of gratitude, to give thanks to God. That's one of the ways we can apply Ecclesiastes 2 this, this afternoon. You know, we often eat a meal, run a race, enjoy friendship, and we take them for granted as if God owes us those things. It's hard to be grateful when you think God owes you that. This is why remembering the gospel is so important. We were lost. We were dead in our sins. We at one point hated God. We hated others. We overlook how offensive and serious our sin is before a holy God. And the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that we deserve God's wrath. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if you ask, well, what do I deserve? What does God owe me? Romans 6.23 says, the wages, what you deserve, what I deserve, the wages of our sin is death. He doesn't owe us T-bone steaks and sunsets and friendships. He, we, he, what we deserve is death. That means, friends, every breath, every heartbeat, every moment that you're alive today or tomorrow is a gift from God. It is his mercy given to us in Christ that if you're not a Christian, that you might return to him. And if you are a Christian, that you might enjoy him. Not only does God give us life, God gives food and drink and the tastes of food that taste good. He gives us family and friends to laugh with. He gives us legs to run, sunsets to watch, music to enjoy, and he gives us the ability to enjoy all those good gifts. Amen. That's God's grace. Amen. Now the call this morning to give thanks to God is not 
is not God scolding us. You better be thankful, people. No, that's not what he's saying. It, it's, it's the call to give thanks is, is the call to open your eyes, open our eyes to see reality so that we might maximize our joy. I uh, was at a stoplight the other day and was waiting for the light to turn green. And when it turned green, I began to creep out into the intersection when all of a sudden, vroom, this car came to the intersection about 50 or 60 miles per hour. And out of my mouth came, thank you, God. I, 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 I should have been hit. I wasn't. Have you ever noticed how gratitude spills out of, your, out of your mouth, out of your heart, when something that was almost lost was spared? We give thanks before meals. That's good. We should use rhythms like that, but then expand it, right? You know, if, you, if you're a Christian and you, you're in the habit of giving thanks before a meal, that's good. But what I, what I want us to do is expand that rhythm of what we give thanks for. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, You say grace, you give thanks before meals. All right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera. And I, 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 give grace, I, I say grace before the play, before I open a book. I say grace before sketching or painting or swimming or fencing or boxing or walking or playing or dancing. I say grace before I dip the pen in the ink and put it to the paper. Oh, Another way to apply this text is to open our hands with the gifts that God has given us and to share them with others. Share what you have. Not as a means to put others or God in our debt so that they owe us, but to open our hands with the gifts that God has given us as an act of faith. Open your hands with generosity with those who are in need as a way of saying, I'm not trusting this gift to satisfy me. I'm not trusting this gift to make me whole. Only God can do that. And this gift came from God in the first place. All I have, I freely received, and so I freely give. That's what grace does. Friends, the Christian... We've, we sang about this, we talked about this, we prayed about this. The Christian is not home in this world. But we're not lost. God made a way home for us in Jesus Christ. And along the way, we find breadcrumbs that serve as signposts saying, it's this way. This is the way home. The world picks up the breadcrumb, one of God's gifts, takes a bite, and decides, you know what? I'm just going to sit down and set up camp here. And they eat more of the breadcrumb. The breadcrumb is delicious, but the breadcrumb is not the meal. And when their stomach growls, the preacher in Ecclesiastes speaks up. It is enjoyable. The gifts of God are enjoyable, but you're missing the point of the gift. You're missing the point of the breadcrumb. The breadcrumb is not there to satisfy you. It's there to show you the way home. But the world does not listen to the message of God. The world says, no, it's bread. The bread has to satisfy me. And so they sit there, they dig their heels in, they keep nibbling on the breadcrumb, never satisfied until they die. And they never make it home. The one who pleases God, as verse 26 says, is the one who trusts God not his gifts. The Christian eats the breadcrumb, enjoys it, and then when their stomach growls, they move on to the next breadcrumb, and they thank God for that breadcrumb, that gift, and they smile 
and they eat that breadcrumb with a smile on their face because they know where God is leading them with those signposts. Friends, the longing that we feel, the longing you might feel in your belly right now because lunch is just around the corner, the longing we feel reminds us that we're one step closer to being home with God, and that's the ultimate goal. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the breadcrumbs. We thank you for your word that tells us who you are and shows us the way. We thank you for the promises which are signposts that point forward to Christ. We thank you for Christ who is the fulfillment of all those promises. Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that you've given us, family and food and home and friendships that are, they're, they're not the ultimate end, but they're they're, they're echoes of things that point us to you who is the giver of those good gifts. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us to enjoy the good gifts not as an end in themselves, but as a way to worship you and give thanks to you who is the giver of every good, every good gift. And Lord, we pray that ultimately our joy and our contentment would be in you, that we might be satisfied and that we might be different than the world which looks to the dead ends for satisfaction. Amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.